Perhaps you can remember a time when you thought it was coming. You thought that you were going to get that present that you were hoping for. And after you opened the gifts that you received, you had a sense of disappointment. And perhaps you knew that you shouldn't have that sense of disappointment. You knew that there was likely a good reason for why the gift that you wanted to be there at that moment wasn't there. You knew that perhaps waiting a little bit longer didn't mean that you weren't going to get what you hoped for. And that what you hoped for would probably at some point in the future, even if not on that day, that it would arrive. It wasn't there at the time you wanted it. But you had this kind of sense of assurance that at some point it would come. I think it could be like that when a Christian suffers unjustly and waits on God's justice. It's like you just hoped that justice would show up shortly after you said amen in your prayer for it. But it didn't. But you have this assurance as a Christian that one day it will come. It might be difficult for Christians who are comfortable and cozy to conceive of hoping in God's justice. After all, when a Christian is snuggled under his or her own warm blanket in a temperature-controlled home with a nice breakfast awaiting in the morning and perhaps family nearby in one way or another, hoping in God's justice might seem unreasonable or belligerent or barbaric. But for Christians who have watched families slaughtered before their very own eyes, for Christian parishioners who have watched their pastor be dragged out into the streets, beaten in front of their eyes, taken away, hauled off to a prison, and subsequently sentenced to execution. For Christians who have been lined up by totalitarian governments and executed in one way or another, whether they were wearing orange jumpsuits or whether they were just guns that were just fired at their heads, hoping in God's justice seems like a very instinctive outworking of one's faith. It doesn't mean it's the only instinctive outworking. It would likely for a Christian be mingled with intercession and compassion, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine seeing the storm clouds of evil on the horizon or being in the midst of such a storm and not crying out to God like David did in this psalm, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. The Proverbs say that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But I think you can say conversely that hope assured can make the heart resolved. And when the Christian appeals to the righteous God for righteous justice, he or she can be assured that though it be delayed, it will not be denied. Here in this psalm we see David hoping in God's justice. And one of the things that we find in this psalm is that one of the indispensable items that you want to have whenever you are hoping in God's justice, one in which we see David have in this psalm, when you are the victim of, say, slander or the target of persecutors, one of the indispensable items that you want to have is a clear conscience. And we do see that David had that in this psalm. It reminds us of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 24, verse 16, that he himself always strived to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. And in this psalm, we're going to come to quickly find that David indeed had that. 
But as we make our way into the text, first let's give attention briefly to the superscript. The superscript creates context, at least some of it, perhaps though not as much as we hope it would. Well, the superscript reads, A meditation of David which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now that word for meditation, it's a Hebrew word that's only used once in the Psalter. This is the first time we're seeing it in the Psalter. It'll be the last time we see it in the Psalter. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament. That's in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. And as to what it means, well, there are many options that are suggested. The word that's used here comes from a Hebrew root word that means to go astray. So here are just some possibilities of what it means when it says a meditation of David... It could speak to a kind of poem that has an irregular meter, or a melody that has slurs and trills, or a rhythm that is not even. Or it could be a poem of emotional intensity. That's just referring to some of the quotations from a few commentators, but if you didn't like those options, there are others. It can connote a kind of roaring or an urgent crying to God. So the classification for this kind of psalm, or the kind of the instrumental context in which it was found, is mysterious, but the message of the psalm is not. And we'll get to that shortly. It's also worth noting the circumstances out of which this psalm sprang forth. We're told that it was a song that David composed and sung to God because of the words of Cush, a Benjamite. We don't know who this Cush was, But apparently, when you read through the psalm, he was not a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. Not the kind of guy that you'd let water your plants, do your taxes, or cut your hair. Maybe you'd let him cut your hair, but you'd be wise to not share any personal information with him, seeing that he was a man whose words and slander caused David great trouble. Now, we do not know who Cush was. You can read many commentators, and some will suggest, maybe that was another way of referring to Saul. Maybe it was this person. Maybe it was that person. We don't know exactly, but we do know that he was a Benjamite. And when you, per- when you peruse David's in- interactions with Benjamites and say 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you could see that Benjamites often arrayed themselves against David in either battle or criticism. Just a couple of examples you can find in 1 Samuel 22, verse uh, 7, as Saul was gathering Benjamites to go against David. And you could look at 2 Samuel 19, verses 6 and 7. So even though we might like some more biographical information about Cush, from God's vantage point, we're fine without knowing it. But we can see the prayer from the situation that he provoked. The prayer that sprung up from David's circumstances. So we begin... In Psalm 7, verses 1 and 2, where we read, O Lord, or O Yahweh, my God, in You I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they, or better rendered He, tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So David begins this psalm in a way that might not surprise us. He begins with a declaration of trust in his God. And what strikes me about this is how David's declaration of trust is not coming while he is, say, swinging leisurely on a hammock while on an island getaway. There's nothing wrong with trusting God while on a hammock on a leisurely island getaway. That's fine. We should be trusting God at those moments. But which is easier to say? Is it easier to say, in you I put my trust, while you, for instance, sip on a latte with friends? Or when you can say in the very same breath, save me from all those who persecute me. That's where David is in this moment. 
So different people may have different answers as to what is easier, but I would think the majority would say the former is much more easier than the latter. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking this would be a wrong takeaway. So when you see David say, O Lord my God, or O Yahweh my Elohim, though Elohim is inflected here, O Yahweh my Elohim, in you I put my trust. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is the takeaway. Wow, look how great David is. He is so much better than me. Rather, a better takeaway for the Christian would be something like this. The same Spirit who compelled David to write these words is the same Holy Spirit who lives in me. And He can bring forth such words in the midst of situations where it seems almost impossible, humanly speaking, to say them. By way of encouragement for sons and daughters of God going through times of affliction, don't see the pressure that you're facing as something that will break you. Rather, see it by the grace of God as a means by which He will use, accompanied by the Word and the Spirit, to shape you and to further conform you to the image of Christ. And all we see David exemplify that kind of trust in the midst of a whole bunch of situations that tried trust. Now, let's look briefly at the language that David uses here. So the psalm begins and he says, O Yahweh, right? I know it says Lord in our text, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the covenant name of God. So he's appealing to the Lord and he's using the covenant name, O Yahweh, my Elohim. Again, the word Elohim is inflected, but that word Elohim is one of the names of God that connotes the almighty power of God. It's used in Genesis 1. So he's essentially appealing to God by His covenant name, calling God His Almighty One. And he says, in you I put my trust. The word for trust here in the Hebrew is a verb that means to seek refuge. And so you have essentially a kind of good word picture of what it looks like to trust God. Trusting God looks like running to God as though He were a tower in which you would find refuge. From an oncoming army, from an oncoming storm. It's what it looks like to trust God. It's not the only imagery you could use of what it looks like to trust God, but it is good imagery to understand what it looks like to trust God. And he prayed, Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. So David, again, as we see on so many occasions, he's looking for rescue. He's looking for deliverance. And he's speaking about multiple persecutors here. Who were these persecutors? Was this going on during the time in which Saul was chasing him? So Saul and all the men that were joined to Saul were were pursuing after David. We know that throughout David's life, he had a whole bunch of people pursuing him at different times. Whether it be somebody like Saul, whether it be Doeg, the Edomite, whether it be Ishbosheth, or whether it be Absalom. There's a whole bunch of people that sought David's life. But the antagonist that's most immediately in view is Cush. Right? Because you look at the superscript of the psalm, and this was a psalm that he wrote concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. And that becomes a little more clear in verse 2, where we read, Lest they tear me like a lion, that word they could better be rendered he. So you got kind of the, the plural reference in verse 1, save me from all those who persecute me, but then in verse 2 you go from the plural to the singular, and who is the singular? Well, most likely it's Cush. That's most likely who is in view. Lest he tear me like a lion. So he knew that the intentions of his enemies were not benign. They sought to tear him apart like a lion into pieces. You might say that where the lion of David's youth failed... Remember the lion that he referenced in his back and forth with Goliath? You can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 34 through 37. He talks about the lion that had taken a lamb or sheep from the flock. And that lion ended up losing 
to David, lost a lamb and then lost his life. He was killed by David. And where that lion failed, they wanted to succeed. Now this metaphoric language with respect to enemies is used repeatedly in the Psalter. It's not a pretty one, but it is a fitting one. Just like a lion would maul its prey. Again, it's not a pretty picture, but it well connotes what David's enemies wanted to do to him. They wanted to destroy him and they wanted to maul him like a lion. I think it's good for us to remember that Christians too have enemies. We know that ultimately, according to Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We know that according to 1 Peter chapter 5, we have an adversary who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. And like Peter, I would imagine that that enemy would love to maul us or to use language that was used with reference to Peter, would love to sift us like wheat. But like Peter, we have a Savior who intercedes for us, ensuring that our faith will not fail. The last phrase of verse 2, while there is none to deliver, paints a picture of helplessness. It's as though he were one man against an entire army. And it's as though he's painting a picture to say unto the Lord, the odds are so against me that there's no one to deliver me. If you don't come through, I am done. I am finished. He was helpless. Just as a brief aside, let me say this. For anyone who would be reconciled to God, there comes a point where you recognize your helplessness to be reconciled to God in any other way other than trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to your own helplessness and the ultimate help that God has provided through what Jesus Christ has done. A person sees their guilt before God in the absence of any remedy that can reconcile the guilty apart from Jesus Christ. Just to extend this a little bit further, the guilty, the helpless sinner says, there is none to deliver except for one, the Son of God who died for my sins and rose from the grave. And back to the text. David, so he's describing his plight. In verses 1 and 2, essentially describing his plight, but now you're going to see in verses 3 through 5 that he essentially describes the state of his conscience. In verses 3 through 5, we read, O Lord my God, same language we saw at the beginning of the psalm, O Yahweh, my Elohim, essentially, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. So here David is exhibiting to us and to the Lord, His clear conscience. He says, Oh Lord, my God. And then he protests his innocence. If I have done this, what's this? Essentially what Cush was accusing him of. Some of what we see in verse 4. If I have done these things, if there's iniquity in my hands, hands represent that, 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 that instrument of action. If I've done these things, if there's iniquity and evil in my hands... If I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me. If I am essentially an unprovoked provocateur. If I am going after one who was my friend. One who was at peace with me. If I have done those things, then you get to the second half of verse 4. Or have plundered my enemy without cause. This could be rendered in a couple of ways. Could be, or if I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. That could be one way of rendering it. It could also be a parenthetical note in which David is saying something like this. Rather, I rescued him who is my adversary without cause. 
So it could be rendered in any of those ways. It could be a parenthesis in which David is saying, actually, I've done the opposite. He might be referring to the multiple times, two times, that we see in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26, where he spared Saul's life. That's a possibility as well. But he's essentially saying to the Lord, if I've done these things, and then he's going to get to the kind of oath that he puts himself under in verse 5. But before we get there, I want us to quickly look at these verses to see how David was slandered. They give us good insight to that. If I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, verse 4. So some of what was being said about David was that. So if you wonder what the people were saying, and again, this might have been during the time in which Saul was pursuing David, and many people were likely saying about David, Saul was at peace with David. Saul had no problems with David, but you know what David wanted? David wanted the kingdom. And then all of a sudden, this slander begins to spread, and all of a sudden, the people, not only Saul, not only his men, but the people begin to be looking at David as though he were an unprovoked provocateur. You see the way in which David was slandered. He had false accusations that were levied against him. You get a little bit of a glimpse of this in 1 Samuel 24 verse 9. When David was speaking to Saul, he said these words, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? In fact, a little bit later on, in that same chapter, Saul would admit, You are more righteous than I. For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. But you get a little bit of a glimpse into the way in which David was slandered. And you see the danger that slander can cause. Proverbs 22.1, at least the first half of it, says that a good name is to be chosen over great riches. Cush and others... We're taking that highly prized asset, a good name. And they were taking it and they were running it through the mud. It didn't belong to them. They shouldn't have done that. And therefore, by way of application, let me just exhort us in two ways. First, be careful what you do with someone else's name. A person's name is not your property. It's theirs, if you will. And you want to treat it with carefulness and respect. Just like you wouldn't spray paint your friend's house or vandalize your friend's vehicle. At least I hope you wouldn't. You would want to treat their name with respect in what you say and how you say it. So may there not be slander named among us. May we be those who remember Proverbs 22.1 A good name is to be chosen over great riches. And we are very careful with how we deal with someone else's name. Cush wasn't with respect to David, and it brought all kinds of pain and hardship. We don't want to walk in Cush's sandals. The second thing I want to call your attention to is to consider how the Son of God allowed Himself to be the subject of false accusations on behalf of sinners like us. Multiple false accusations. If you look in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was before the high priest, many gave false testimony concerning Him, but their testimony was not consistent. You see that in Mark chapter 14, verse 56. But then some said that He said, that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. He didn't say that. He said, destroy this temple. Insinuating that they would. And then in three days he would raise it up. And the temple that he was speaking about was his body. 
He didn't say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I will raise it up. It was a false accusation. That was the kind of false accusation they had to use in front of the high priest. Then it's interesting, when they come before Pilate, they change the false accusations. You get to Luke 23, verse 2, and you see them say concerning Jesus, the false accusation is a little bit different in that context, this man is perverting the nation. So kind of a, a, a general bit of libel against Jesus there. Then they say he's forbidding to pay taxes unto Caesar. That's not what I read in Luke's Gospel. Remember when he was asked, is it lawful to pay taxes unto Caesar? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. But they falsely accused him. So if you find yourself slandered, now or in the future, regarded as a criminal or a hater of men, and guilty of things in which you are innocent, whether by the world or by family, do not be surprised. Because if the world loved you as its own, it would suggest that you didn't belong to Christ. But He's chosen you out of the world. But when you are in such a situation, remember that you're walking a pathway that Jesus Himself has trod. He knows what it's like to be slandered and falsely accused. Back to the text. In verse 5, David's so confident of his innocence and he could essentially say that he would welcome his enemy's victory and his own defeat. Let the enemy pursue me and overtake that me that's there in the New King James is italicized. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and my honor in the dust. You have a threefold reference to self here in verse 5. And David is essentially saying, look, if I did these things... If I'm guilty, then let them kill me and let my name be held in shame and disrepute. (laughs) Think about this. For David to say that, he knew he was innocent in this matter. And he knew the one to whom he was speaking. This is the God who searches and tries the mind and the heart. We see that later on in this psalm. To use language from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, He is the God before whom nothing is hidden. And by way of application, when you know that, when you know that the God to whom you are praying is the God before whom nothing is hidden, that will at times lead to boldness, like it did with David here. Because you could say, I know I'm innocent in this matter. I know that as far as I can see, my own heart and my mind, and I've searched my heart and my mind, and I've prayed for you to search my heart and my mind and bring to the surface anything that's offensive to you. I I don't see false motives here or wrong motives. So Lord, I pray with boldness that you would do such a thing if it be your will. But I think my opinion, more often, when you know that the God to whom you're praying is the God before whom nothing is hidden, it will work in you humility. And to take it a little step further practically, those who pray with you will hear that humility. Because you can't escape it. Because you know the one to whom you're praying. You know He sees your heart, your motives, and your mind perfectly. So you'll start speaking to Him with a level of childlike reverence and sensitivity that befits one who knows that you are open before the one with whom you have to do. So at times it will present you with opportunities to speak boldly and a boldness will rise up from within, but I think more often than not it will produce humility. But speaking of the former boldness, consider how David proceeded to pray. Verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. 
So praying from a place of conviction of innocence, David seeks vindication from God. That's what he wants. And the language that he uses here might appear to us rather strong. You've got a threefold repetition here. Threefold repetition to self in verse 5. A threefold repetition here with respect to what he wanted God to do. Arise! Lift yourself up! Rise up for me! All of that language connotes an appeal to God for action. It's as though David was saying, humanly speaking, it looks like you're nowhere to be found right here. It looks like you're sleeping. And David knew that he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. But nonetheless, his heart just called out for God to take action. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Language, some of which is reminiscent, at least to Israelite ears, of Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, of what would be said when the ark would be moved at the beginning of a journey. Arise. The second petition, lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies, may be a stronger expression. One that again connotes that David sought for God to act. God's timetable is perfect, but from our perspective, it could sometimes seem like it's suffering unnecessary delays. David also provides a rationale for the request because of the rage of my enemies. So it's as though he says, Arise in your anger. They're raging against me. But now, Yahweh, arise and let their anger be met with your divine right and righteous anger. And then he says, Rise up. Could be rendered awake for me to the judgment you have commanded. Don't think of that language there, awake or rise up, as disrespectful. It isn't like David was saying to God in some sort of uh, derogatory, disrespectful way, wake up. It'd be more akin to like a child running into his or her parents' room and looking for a daddy. They're scared. They, they may hear, have heard something and they may think somebody's trying to get into the house. And they say, wake up, wake up, wake up. It's more akin to something like that as opposed to anything disrespectful. He's looking for God to wake up. To the judgment you have commanded. Essentially here, David is essentially praying for God's will to be done. You have appointed judgment. You are the righteous God of all the earth. You've appointed for the wicked to be judged. And this might be, you can say, an Old Testament way in which David is praying according to the will of God. I know you are the God who judges the wicked. So I'm praying for you to rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded or to the judgment that you have appointed. It is, I would essentially say, David's way of seeking to pray along the lines of God's will. Verse 7, we read, So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. Again, powerful imagery. It's as though David is seeking public vindication and he seeks for God to rise up, to return, as it were, to the judgment seat. So the imagery is something like this. Let the congregations of the peoples surround you. In other words, gather the assembly for this judgment and then return on high likely connotes God returning to that judgment seat. Arise, get back to that place as it were, Lord, and let the peoples be gathered around you. Publicly vindicate me. Exonerate the righteous. Judge the wicked is essentially the connotation of what's being said here. The picture continues in verse 8. The Lord, or Yahweh, shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, or O Yahweh, according to my righteousness, 
and according to my integrity within me. So verse 8 reminds us again of how God will judge the peoples. And David was looking for a temporal manifestation of judgment in that moment, but it nonetheless does remind us of what we read about in Acts chapter 17, that God has appointed a day in which He will judge men through the man that He has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. How will God judge the world? Through the man He has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man returns, there will be deliverance and there will be judgment. Now, I want to help you with something here. When you see David say, second half of verse 8, Judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Don't make the mistake of thinking that David is claiming something akin to sinless perfection. I mean, New Testament Christians who love Paul's epistle to the church of Rome could read this and say, Whoa, David, what are you saying here? David is not standing in opposition to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. By no means. As a matter of fact, when Paul is making the case for the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Romans 4, among other places, he quotes David, particularly from Psalm 32. So David is not in opposition to Paul when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. What David is speaking about here is what we see in other places in the Old Testament. You see language like this in a place like 2 Samuel 22 as well. You see David use this kind of language. Don't get confused and think that David is saying, Judge me! And let me into your presence as a result of you evaluating my life and seeing how righteous I am. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what he is saying, judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness within the context of this situation. That's what's going on. He's talking about this situation in which he was falsely slandered by Cush. He was pursued by others. And he's saying, Lord, judge me according to my righteousness. Not as though I'm going to stand in your presence because I'm such a righteous guy that I earned heaven. No, 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 no. But in this case, Lord, I am innocent. They are guilty. If I have done this, if I have repaid evil to the one who was at peace with me, then, Lord, lay my life in the dust of the ground. So he's saying, Lord, look at my righteousness in this situation. David knew that there was no one righteous in God's sight, David wrote Psalm 143. And in Psalm 143, verse 2, we read, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. So David could speak about a righteousness before God with respect to the standard of God's holiness and say no one is righteous. And then he could look at a circumstantial situation like the one he was in and say, Judge me according to my righteousness in this situation. Vindicate me. And then we come to verse 9, where he prays, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Brothers and sisters, in the days in which we are living, and I need not give you a litany of examples, though I could, this is a prayer that you and I would do well to pray. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. I pray that we would pray these kind of prayers more. You look in the book of Revelation and you see how the prayers of the saints, they rise like incense before the throne of God before they are eventually cast back down to earth as it were. Cry out to the living God. When you see wickedness, don't just rail against it, but pray to God about it. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just the righteous. Now again, in this situation, he's talking about being exonerated of the matters in which he was falsely accused. 
I want to call your attention to something else here. Two things. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. A couple of, I think, really neat things to note with that statement. One is, David has been appealing to God of his innocence. But he was well aware that God was not only aware, so to speak, of his guiltless actions. But God also knew his heart and his mind. It's amazing to me that God, that David could make such a protestation of innocence to God, knowing that God knew his mind and heart, which I think speaks to a work of God's grace in the way in which God cultivated in David a heart that was free of animosity against, say, somebody like Saul. Aren't you amazed when you get to 2 Samuel and you read chapter 1 and Saul dies and you see David lamenting the way that he did? I think for most of us, we're kind of like, huh? Like, wouldn't that be like a celebratory psalm or something like that? But yet, there was such a work in his heart, you might say, where he just didn't have animosity. He could appeal to Saul, like we saw early in 1 Samuel 24. He knew that God searches and tests the hearts and minds. Here also is a great verse to have in mind that speaks to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Text here says, who tests the hearts and minds? God. We fast forward to Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. And there we see that the Lord Jesus says that He is the one. I am He who searches the hearts and minds, or the minds and hearts. So it's a good reminder that Jesus Christ is the living God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is God. Verse 10, David says, My defense is of God, or literally, my shield is upon God, who saves the upright in heart. Beautiful language. David isn't saying here, it doesn't seem to me anyway, that he's exactly saying that God was his shield. We see him use language like that like earlier, like Psalm 3, for instance. But this is a little bit different. He says, My shield is upon God. It's as though he was saying that God was his shield bearer. That doesn't connote that David thought of himself as the main character and God like had a supporting role. Rather, it's as though he was saying, my defense, to use language from one commentator, is God's responsibility. He's my shield bearer. We get to verses 11 through 13 and we read the following. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So it should be no surprise that David appeals to God for justice and the way in which he perfectly tries the heart and mind, leaving no proverbial stone unturned, called to mind the fact that God is indeed a just judge. He is the judge of all the earth who shall do perfectly right. And there's so much more that could be said about that, but for the sake of time, I call your attention to what follows. He also notes God is angry or indignant. The implication with the wicked every day. When driving home from Orlando, I saw a sign that said, God is not angry. It was an advertisement for a church in the Orlando area. Sadly, whoever put that sign up hasn't read Psalm 7. (laughs) Or at least (laughs) forgot to do some sort of search to find out if God was angry. The one true God of the Bible is love. 
He is light in whom there is no darkness. He's also a consuming fire. And He's also indignant or angry with the wicked every day. There are at least two aspects of God that could be easily overlooked. Many have a view of God that is akin to something like Santa Claus. Now think about it. Can you picture Santa Claus getting really angry or enacting justice? It seems disturbing, right? Like, no. A lot of people think about God in that kind of way. Like, no, I can't picture Him being angry. I can't picture Him enacting justice. But to miss those aspects of who God is is to have created an idol that almost, almost bears some characteristics of the one true God. I say almost because righteousness that is disjointed from divine love or love that is disjointed from divine righteousness is not divine love. God's love is perfectly joined to His justice and His righteousness and His holiness. So it may look as though some characteristics of God are being showed in such an image, like, oh, kindness and love. But remember, divine love that is disjointed from divine justice is not divine love. God's love is a righteous love. His love is a holy love. It's a just love. And then David goes on to describe God as a warrior. Strong language. If he does not turn back, and there's some debate about this, but the greater consensus is that David is speaking here about his enemies. If he does not turn back, if the one who is doing these wicked things, if Cush and company does not turn back, that appears to be what he's saying. If he, Cush, perhaps implication others, then he, God, will sharpen his sword. He'll prepare his sword for battle, as it were. He will bend back his bow and make it ready. He'll prepare for himself instruments of death. He's not limited into the ways in which he can enact judgment. That's how powerful God is. He's got all kinds of instruments that he could use to bring about that kind of temporal judgment. And he makes his arrows into fiery shafts. So in other words, David was saying, if these enemies don't repent then they're going to be on the receiving end of the sword of divine wrath. This is imagery of divine weaponry, as it were. As it were. Now, I want to call your attention to something here that could be easily missed. When going through the Psalms, you want to be always on the lookout for the attributes of God. And some of the attributes that you obviously see here is divine anger against sin. And you see the holiness of God's wrath against evildoers who will not turn back. But I want you to also see the patience and the forbearance of God. God could have had that bow release its arrow a long time ago, so to speak. But instead, He's pictured as one who's holding it. And it's divine forbearance and patience that holds back that arrow. And that could be easily missed here. Let me just exhort everyone in this room. Please know, I know David is speaking most immediately about his context of Cush and other slanderers and people who are seeking to persecute him, but know that by way of extended application, this applies to every man or woman who doesn't bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. If he or she doesn't turn back, kind of Old Testament language for repentance, if such a one doesn't turn around and say, what am I doing? I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm standing in rebellion against God. If such a one does not turn back, they need to know that God has His sword prepared. And if you think that's just Old Testament imagery, turn to Revelation 19 and you'll see when Jesus returns, He has a sword that proceeds from His mouth and there's going to be a bloody judgment that ensues when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And that's not even counting the casting into the lake of fire that will ensue thereafter. 
So this isn't just an Old Testament depiction of God. It is an Old Testament depiction of God, but it is joined to Old Te- New Testament depictions of what the judgment will be like when God's judgment is poured out on unbelieving men and women. Why? Why proceed and not turn back in such rebellion when the arrows of divine wrath have fallen upon another so that you might be exonerated? Think about that. It's as though the arrow was pulled back and the bow was ready. But instead of being fired upon you, the arrow fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore divine wrath so that you could enter into God's presence. So see this in light of the New Testament context. Turn back. Why had the arrow of divine wrath fall upon you when it has fallen upon Jesus Christ? Turn back. Turn to Christ. See Him as the only way in which you could be saved. You do not know how many days you have on this earth. Tomorrow is not promised to anyone. You do not want to be walking on the tightrope of this life not knowing if you are alright and reconciled to God. And Why? Why let the arrows of divine wrath fall upon you? And there's another who absorbed the arrows of divine wrath on your behalf on the cross for anyone who will look to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But if you're going to wonder, what might that judgment look like temporally? I know eternally it looks like that imagery of being cast into the lake of fire and that being cast into hell and so on, the lake of fire. But what might it look like temporally? Well, David paints a picture of that in verses 14 through 16. He says, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. You see the, the imagery that's painted there? It's as though the wicked... He's using language of like a woman being pregnant. It's as though the wicked, they conceive in their inner being evil. And then this evil grows. It kind of continues to grow and they conceive trouble and then they bring forth falsehood. Two ways in which that could be understood. It may be a way of understanding what Cush was doing. Like he had this evil that was in his heart. And then eventually the evil that was in his heart, the trouble that he conceived, gave way to words that were false and slanderous against David. That's one way it could be seen. Another way it could be seen is that the word for falsehood here could be understood as vanity. As though to say the wicked conceives of trouble. And then they speak it forth, as it were. They try to enact it. But then it actually turns to nothing. And eventually that's what happens. Eventually. Verse 15, He has made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which He made. His trouble shall return upon His own head and His violent dealing shall come down on His own crown. So if you're wondering, one of the, wondering about how God might bring about this divine justice temporally, here's one way in which it could come about. That the one who dug a pit for someone else ends up falling into the pit in which they dug. And you've got... Quite a few examples in the scriptures of how this could happen. Think about Haman. Ends up hanging on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. You think about those who sought to set up Daniel so that he might be thrown into the lion's den, which he was. But he was preserved in the lion's den and subsequently they and their wives and families were thrown into the lion's den as well. They dug a pit for Daniel, but they themselves were thrown into that pit. There are other examples that could be uh, given as well. In Psalm 57, verse 6, David wrote, They dug a pit for me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. I thought of how, if you remember from my childhood, maybe for your childhood too, you think about the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, and how Wile E. Coyote would have 
what was it, Acme Dynamite, and all kinds of other Acme things that he would try to um, use to get the Roadrunner. And it always happened that he ended up being the recipient of his own devices on the receiving end. And that's one of the ways in which God can bring about his temporal judgment. That brings us to perhaps what might be, maybe not, a surprising end to this psalm. I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So first thing I want you to see that David sees this about God. Like he sees how God will use in His providence the pits that others have dug for others and use those pits so that the enemies themselves will fall into it. And he praises God for such things. Think of the power of God's providence. Think of God, how powerful God is, that He could just superintend the actions of sinful men, and He could do so sinlessly, so that they end up falling into pits that they dug for others, so that the trouble that they planned for others fell upon their own heads. And David sees that as an outworking of God's righteousness. David doesn't shrink back from that. He knows that God is good and just and perfect and holy, light in whom there is no darkness. And he praises God for His righteousness. He praises God because God is a God who in the final analysis will make sure that the wicked... In, in, due, in due time receive justice. And he praises God for that. But not only for God's punishment of the wicked, but for his exoneration of the righteous. And that is coming as well, the ultimate exoneration of the righteous and the ultimate judgment of the wicked. I want to call your attention too, as well, the fact that David is praising God here. David has enemies who are seeking to tear him apart like a lion. And what is he doing here? He's declaring that he will praise Yahweh according to his righteousness. He's declaring that he will sing to the name of Yahweh Most High. That identification for God that's used in Genesis 14. The Most High. He's declaring that he's going to praise his name. Name representing the totality. The sum of who God is. So he could be pursued by enemies that want to destroy him and maul him like a lion. And in the midst of that, he's going to declare that he is going to sing praise to God. David's pattern is, I think, reminiscent of Paul and Silas while they're sitting in a dungeon, but yet around midnight, they could be singing psalms of praise to God in the midst of imprisonment. As Christians, we're reminded that we are not only to sing on mountain peaks, but we are to sing in valleys low. Not only in sunshine, but in the dark. Not only in times of peace, but in times of danger. Not only in cozy beds, but in cold dungeons. David spent quite a bit of this psalm um, proclaiming his innocence and righteousness, but his righteousness was not the cause or the object of his praising. His eyes were on God's righteousness, and he sang praise to Yahweh's name. The last thing to call your attention to when I close, don't miss where this psalm ends, lest you forget where it started. Having began the psalm with a desperate cry for help, David ends the psalm with a declaration of praise. Prayer may begin in any number of places, but when we actually do pray so often, it will end in a place of praise. And that's just one of the many reasons to find yourself in the prayer closet praying to God. Whatever emotions you carried in, well, you may find yourself at the end of that prayer time praising God, whereas you went in crying out to Him in desperation for help. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all of the instruction that we find in your word. 
I thank you for the patterns for prayer that we see. I thank you for the descriptions that are found in this beautiful imagery whereby we could better understand your holiness and justice, but at the same time see your mercy and forbearance as well. Father, I thank you that when we think of the fiery shafts of divine wrath, that we think about that sword that was prepared as it, for us as it were, we get to rejoice that your judgment fell upon another. You are both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for satisfying your justice and saving us from your wrath by placing your wrath upon your perfect Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that as we go forth from this place that you might find us like David, like Paul, and like Silas, praising you at all times. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, that when we find ourselves in times of desperation in one way or another, we could come and we could cry by the power of the same Holy Spirit who compelled David to write this song. And we could say, O Yahweh, my God, in you I put my trust. Thank you, Father, that you are trustworthy. And may you be glorified in our lives. Even when that trust is tried, may you get glory by the Spirit-wrought trust that you have worked in your people, Lord. And may you find us praying in such a way that we might glorify you and seek for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.